Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Maura Healy was a shoe-in for Massachusetts governor and came away victorious in an historic win. But what surprises did the elections bring both locally and nationally? Which of the early results seemed to indicate trends? And in the end, what issues motivated voters to cast a ballot? We're talking reactions to the November 8th election results for the full hour with the Mass Politics Profs. Joining me remotely, Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Aaron. Hello, thanks for having me. Louise Jimenez, also an Associate Professor of Political Science at UMass Boston. Hi, Louise. Hi, thanks for the invitation. And Shannon Jenkins, Political Science Professor at UMass Dartmouth. Welcome back, Shannon. Hi, Callie. You can read more of their analysis on their blog, masspoliticsprofs.org. Uh, let me begin this way uh, with a very inappropriate headline um, by the Daily Beast, which read, Posters have no effing idea what's going to happen during the 2022 midterm elections. Um, and I mention that because uh, that seemed to be the case. But the rest of the piece is quite thoughtful as they try to... Um, figure out why it is that pollsters and handicappers just could be wrong on election night because there's so many factors to consider in ways that there had not been in previous midterm elections. Um, and uh, to some large degree, that turned out to be predictive, that headline, um, because what had been predicted or thought or um, depending on where you stood um, on, uh, in, on along party lines, that there would be a red wave. And it turns out so far, Shannon, that it looks like a red ripple. Yeah. I mean, if you look at sort of historical political science models about, you know, midterm elections and midterm loss, right, um, the, the Democrats should have had some staggering losses here. That's what we would have predicted. And, you know, the polls seem to be converging on that's what was going to happen. But, you know, all of these polls are dependent on who answers or who responds to the poll. And that's becoming increasingly difficult these days to get people to answer their phone at all, let alone, you know, respond to a poll. Um, and all of the models are, you know, sort of based on their own special sauce about, you know, determining who's likely to turn out. Um, and so to the extent that any one of those two, right, are, are off, right, the polls are off. And this isn't the first time this has happened. And I think pollsters are have been for many years wringing their hands. Um, the interesting thing I think I would say to me is that it appears you know, in some places to be to be maybe sort of closely predictive. There are the races that we thought were going to be tight are tight, but there are a few races that are that were pretty wildly off, and they're 
off in different directions. Like I expected, um, I didn't expect Florida to go so strongly Republican. I expected the Republicans to win. Um, but, you know, for instance, Rubio beat um, Demings by a huge margin. And then you can compare that to New Hampshire, where everyone was hand-wringing about Maggie Hassan and that, you know, it looked like it was going to be a really tight race. And that was one of the first, you know, close races to be called. And it was called for her. So those polls were off and they were off in different directions, which is, you know, kind of fascinating, but also worrisome. Luis, what's your take? Yeah, so structurally, we would have expected exactly what Shannon said, and political science has been saying this for quite a while. But the reason why I think we saw what happened in, in such different directions is because normally, the kind of people that get motivated to go vote in the midterms are different than the people that go that get motivated to vote in the electoral in the general election for the president. Uh, presidential elections. And yesterday, we had people that were motivated by issues that normally they're not motivated for, right? Like abortion was one of them. Also, things related to young people, like uh, the, the forgiveness of loans and things like that. And so young people, which normally don't, vote, especially in the midterms, they don't vote, uh, seem to have voted at a much larger rate, which helped the Democrats. Uh, but then there's also seems to be some regional uh, dynamics that are changing. And it's hard, I think, for pollsters to capture that as they're moving, as the as the sand, you know, so below them is moving. Like in Florida, what Shannon mentioned, something is happening in Florida. We are not exactly sure what's happening, but the same demographic groups that behave one way in other states are behaving differently in Florida. Like the Miami-Dade went for the Republicans, which, you know, a few years ago would have been unheard of. But that seems to be motivated by Latinos and other groups that in other states are not moving uh, in a Republican direction. So I think right now, uh, Democrats have to be feeling good about what happened last night. Um, but it just in general for pollsters, it seems like the electorate is harder and harder to predict. And Aaron. You know, I think the headline's great. We're not allowed to say what it is, but it's accurate. I mean, you know, I teach research methods. Polling is both an art and a science. And what we're seeing is the science is really hard, right? If you're polling for, you know, about the um, U.S. population, you know, do they like uh, Coke or Pepsi? We know the demographics of the U.S. population. What's different in political polling is we're trying to generalize to an unknown population, and that population is the people who turn out. So part of the reason all these you know, polls point in a different direction is they are trying to predict a population that is unknown until election day, and they get it wrong sometimes. But what I do find fascinating, there, there had sort of been um, uh, common knowledge had developed that polls were off and polls were off in the way that it uh, overrepresented Democrats, that Donald Trump had politicized polling so that Republicans uh, were less um, trusting, less likely to answer. And that's a real problem with polling because we assume um, all individuals um, have an equal chance of being selected and that they're just as apt to answer the phone. But what was so different about this cycle is um, the, the polls were off in the directions that favored Democrats as opposed to um, you know favoring Republicans. So that is something uh, different that pollsters and political scientists are gonna have to um, wrestle with because our, our explanation for why they're wrong was partisan bias. 
And that didn't come out uh, on Tuesday night. Hmm. Well, one race that all polling and a lot of just folks on the street said was an absolute uh, shoe-in, as we said at the beginning, was Maura Healy, um, Massachusetts State uh, Attorney General, becoming the first elected woman and first LGBTQ person to become governor of Massachusetts. Let's take a listen to her victory speech. To every little girl and every young LGBTQ person out there. I hope, I hope tonight shows you that you can be whatever, whoever you want to be. Tonight, tonight, to all of you and to all of you out there, with the help of so many, we made history, didn't we? tonight proud to be the first woman and the first gay person ever elected governor of Massachusetts. Also making history, the team that uh, Maura Healy will be leading, um, five out of six constitutional roles in state government will now be um, held by women, and Andrea Campbell is one of them. She becomes the first black woman to become the attorney general of Massachusetts and winning statewide. Here she is in victory. This win, our win, is a culmination of hard work, purpose-driven work, and I am so ready to get to work on behalf of the Commonwealth and on behalf of all of you as the next attorney general. All right, Aaron O'Brien, respond to the Maura Healy win and the wins in general for Massachusetts all-woman-led leadership almost, uh, nearly all-woman-led leadership. (laughs) I like it, and it's long overdue. Uh, (laughs) Massachusetts is worst in New England for electing women when we look to the state legislature. So to have this kind of turnaround at the top spot, especially to get that governor the top spot, is, again, long overdue in Massachusetts, but uh, I think welcomed by many. I love the clips you pulled, especially the one on Maura Healy, because she did not lean into her identity as she was running. It wasn't a part of her campaign speech. Uh, It wasn't a part of her advertising. Obviously, her presence there and the fact that she was out um, sends a message, but it wasn't a message she vocalized and really ran on. Um, And so I thought it was quite interesting that in that acceptance speech, that was the first time she really gave credence to the or named the historical element of her campaign, being both the first woman popularly elected and being a proud lesbian. Uh, I I thought that was um, that was telling that she didn't run on it. But when she was freed by winning, she made mention of it. And um, in terms of Andrea Campbell, I mean, this is an individual, you know, she she lost by uh, uh, very narrow margins in terms of the um, Boston mayoral race to get into the general election. So, you know, she's a fighter. And I also loved in her um, acceptance speech, she called out some of the people in the room, her own supporters, and said, "Um, if you're going to go have a drink, go elsewhere. I'm talking, basically. And I thought, well, that's 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 something you want in NAG, that she can silence a room and is willing to say so to her own supporters. So it's a big night for Massachusetts. It's long overdue. And there's still a lot of work to do in the statehouse. Louise? 
Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, in particular, I think that the AG position, which you know most people, is not a position that gets a lot of lights, if you will, a lot of interest or a lot of uh, people knowing about it or caring about it usually. Um, but they're quite important, AGs are. And so having a different person in there, especially a black person, uh, I think will probably bring very positive changes or at least things that have been overlooked in the past. Um, that's an important um, change, I think. The other thing though is if I'm a Republican in Massachusetts, um, this hopefully will bring some kind of wake up call for them because as we've said before, uh, we need a competitive um, uh, race or competitive races in, in, in Massachusetts for everyone to be better off. And the Trumpified GOP just, uh, it was just terrible night for them. Uh, it's clear that that kind of uh, message is not gonna work here and so hopefully we'll see a better GOP going forward. And Shannon. Uh, I'm perhaps less optimistic than Louise about the uh, future of the Republican Party in Massachusetts. <laughs> That's the message they should be getting. Um, whether they get it, I'm not sure. Um, Looking at the results, though, I say, you know, in political science, we talk about descriptive representation. And it's the idea of having a government um, that looks like you, that looks like the public. And as Aaron pointed out, we've always sort of lagged on descriptive re representation. And so this is a huge win for, for the Commonwealth um, because the research is really abundantly clear that having more descriptive representation is better. It's better for the sorts of policy outcomes that you have because you bring different issues to the table, different perspectives. It's also better for making people feel better about their government. When government looks like people, people feel more confidence in government. I guess the only downer that I would add is, you know, listening to more Healy's you know, uh, elect victory speech. Yeah, it's true. You know, in Massachusetts, LGBTQ people can be whoever and whatever they want to be. But increasingly, you know, that's not the case in a divided United States um, where LGBTQ candidates and people are under attack um, in many states. And so I don't want to lose sight of, um, you know, some of the losses um, in some places, for instance, in Florida where the state medical board just voted to deny um, gender affirming care to minors, um, the Republicans, you know, clean the table there. Um, I think that's correct um, because, but at the same time, we want to note, and I, you know, we are early resulting here. We're, we're, we're analyzing early results that there are numbers of LGBTQ candidates. There were 50, some running in every state before, um, the election, and a number of them have won. Now, not in Florida, obviously, though I will call attention to the fact that in Florida, they elected the first Gen Zer who is Black. So Florida's seems to be uh, Maxwell Frost, and he's getting quite a well, bit of attention. He's in the House. He's right in the, the House. U.S. House. Yeah. Right, yes. So, oh, so that's quite a bit of a, I'm sorry, that's right, in the U.S. House. It's, he's getting quite of a bit of attention because of that, because of his Gen Z-ness and the fact that he's from Florida. So, but but given what, what, what Louise and the rest of you were saying about just all the differences happening in Florida, all the changes so going so fast that posters can't even really get a good, good sense of what's happening, it'll be interesting to see because now he's from the same state as Ron DeSantis, who's likely 2024 presidential candidate, if if uh, what everybody's saying is correct. Um, now I want to turn to um, 
one of the national races that got quite a bit of attention. But before I do that, let me remind our listeners, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are three of the Mass Politics profs, Erin O'Brien and Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston and Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. And we're picking apart uh, the early results from the November uh, election. Um, looking for trends, uh, trying to figure out what motivated voters to cast a ballot, and, of course, um, discussing the historic win of Maura Healy here in Massachusetts. All right, so in Pennsylvania, the the race of John Fetterman against Dr. Mehmet Oz uh, was very high profile for a number of reasons. First of all, John Fetterman had suffered a stroke, that's the Democrat, and recovered and um, still suffers some some um, ill effects from that, um, which were demonstrated in a very highly uh, touted public debate. Um, Mehmet Oz, very popular for a long time, television doctor who at one time had gotten the support, actually the full support of none other than Oprah Winfrey, who kind of created him. She was he was a longtime uh, favorite contributor to her show and other venues. Um, At the last minute, uh, she said she was supporting John Fetterman. But um, here again was a a race that everybody pretty much was thinking it was going to be close, but leaning toward Dr. Oz pulling it out, he was also very heavily Trump-supported. So that did not happen. John Fetterman actually defeated him, um, which flips the House, flips this seat, sorry, for the Senate, um, from Republican to Democrat. The Democrats are very happy about that. Here he is at his victory speech. We had our slogan. It's on every one of those signs right now. Every county, every vote. Every county, every vote. And that's exactly what happened. We jammed them up. We held the line. I never expected that we were going to turn these red counties blue, but we did what we needed to do. And tonight, that's why I'll be the next U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. Uh, That was a point uh, he was underscoring, red counties turning blue. Um, And this very highly contested um, contest, Shannon, what, what do you think happened here in the end? Yeah, you know, I think Fetterman is just a different kind of candidate, and he has a pretty broad appeal, um, particularly, I think, to, to working working class white voters um, in Pennsylvania who are in those, those red counties. And so to his point, he didn't flip those counties, um, but he closed the margin or he narrowed the margin such that he stemmed the loss. And, and so that's, I think, super helpful. Um, if you, it's, it's a model, you know, in, in some of these states for Democratic candidates, but, you know, I think Fetterman was really a candidate for whom that worked because of the way he presented himself. Um, I don't know that it works for every, uh, you know, Democratic Senate candidate, but I think it provides a, a map and a model for other Democratic candidates who may look to run in the future. Um, one of the things that was very interesting, Louise, is that um, he never presented himself as anything but what he is, which is quite a progressive Democrat. He didn't try to shade off some edges to make himself more palatable. He, you know, came as he was, really, even, um, and, you know, 
candidly talked about the impact of having the stroke. Yeah, which actually, because of who he is, I actually think that played to his strengths. And in this case, we're trying to figure out trends and so on. I think what you can say about Pennsylvania is just that the can the quality of the candidates really mattered because while Fetterman was very much an authentic kind of person, like it does, it didn't seem that he was pretending to be anybody other than what he was, and not just because of how he dressed, how he talked, uh, the actual campaign he ran, you know, the sorts of things like there was a lot of inside baseball uh, references to Pennsylvania, just like the like he had this ad that evoked the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, famous ad of you know Coke ad that everybody would understand if you live in Pittsburgh, you know, anybody over uh, actually just about everybody, even everybody over 20 or something, right? So Mehmet Oz was the exact opposite of that, right? He he really hit him on the fact that he seemed to be a carpetbagger that didn't know about Pennsylvania, um, that just pretended. And and so in this particular case, I think the authenticity really mattered. And, and the policy preferences were secondary, I think, for a lot of voters. Hmm. One of the things he said a couple of times, Aaron, was, you know, I'm a person who fell down and got back up. Um, I he Maybe he knew this, but there is a very popular gospel hymn, which is uh, entitled Fall, Not, Fall Down Nine Times, Get Up Ten. So could have been a subtle signal. I don't know to some of the voters, but that's how I heard it because I'm very well aware of that song. And, you know, that adage or that idea is popular in the recovery community amongst working class people. So, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, he's signaling people's hearts, uh, not just their, you know, um, you know, voting, you know, brains, whatever. Um, you know, I, I think it's important that he was up by a lot all summer. Um, and then the Oz campaign really went after the authenticity both my colleagues have rightfully highlighted, saying, yeah, you know, he's rich, he lived with his parents, and his parents financed him, and uh, it didn't work. Uh, it did close the gap, and I think stepping back from Democrat-Republican for a moment, I, you know, you were very kind, Callie, to reference our blog. I wrote a piece last week about empathy in politics. And I think there's a real good news story here that that debate, I watched it and it was difficult to watch because the gentleman was struggling. But uh, people online were vicious. You know, Donald Trump Jr. wrote, you know, the things you would expect he might write. Uh, a lot of Democratic consultants said, oh, we're in trouble. Um, you know, this is problematic. It's hard to watch. And residents of Pennsylvania said, um, listen, it, you know, with their vote, it took a lot of courage to get on that stage, to be vulnerable publicly in the era of Twitter is, is not easy. And uh, I, I, I'm proud of the way Pennsylvania voters responded to an individual who had the courage to do that. And that has nothing to do with Democrat, Republican, but I think a lot of people want some more civility and kindness in their politics, even though it's not always rewarded, but it was rewarded with John Fetterman. Hmm. Now, another race I want to call attention to, which was also high profile um, for similar reasons, but, um, uh, and was very nasty, um, Democrat Tim Ryan uh, lost uh, to J.D. Vance, who some way recognized as the name of the author of the book, The Hillbilly Elegy, uh, turned into a movie, almost a movement, um, and very much a Trump supporter. And one more thing, an election denier. There are 308, or there were 308 uh, members of the GOP 
who ran um, as candidates who denied the fact that uh, President Biden was actually the president. So that's what we mean by election denying. The early results show that at least 150 of them and counting have won. Um, That's a little, you know, upsetting because you're talking about people who denied the system by which they have just won. Um, And some of them had gone so far as to say before that if they didn't win, that, of course, something had to be wrong with that system because they they believe that President Biden didn't didn't win to begin with. Now, I want to play Tim Ryan's concession speech because what he wanted to make clear was that he, of course, was not an election denier and that the importance of conceding when he had lost is a fundamental part of our democracy. So this is Tim Ryan delivering his concession speech and where he makes clear that he did indeed lose to J.D. Vance. I have the privilege to concede this race to J.D. Vance because the way this country operates is that when you lose an election, you concede and you respect you respect the will of the people right we can't have a system where if you win it's a legitimate election and if you lose someone stole it if you're just tuning in this is under the radar with Callie Crossley I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien and Louise Jimenez of UMass Boston, and Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. We're doing the post-election analysis of early results from the November 8th election. So, Louise, um, I thought that was an extremely important concession speech, given um the election deniers who both won and lost, who even ran. Um, and it's that still, I have to say, frankly, is very shocking to me. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true. Uh, this is it's one of those core values that is absolutely necessary for the system to work. And I'm glad that he brought it up. Unfortunately, comparing, consider this comparing Ohio to Pennsylvania. Tim Ryan wasn't that different than Fetterman in terms of I think Tim Ryan is very authentic and he, you know, he tried to play similar kinds of um, themes to what Fetterman did, but the electorate is just different. It's very different. And J.D. Vance was very similar to Oz, also the kind of person that pretends to be somebody that he's not, from the hillbilly elegy to pretending, right? I mean, he used to be anti-Trump and now he's pro-Trump and he used to say, you know, he he sounded like... uh, the criticisms that he made of, of Trump are similar to other people that uh, from any from any uh, spectrum of the political spectrum. And now he's very Trumpiest and, you know, denying elections and so on, so on and so forth, because he he rightly realized that the only way to win the primary was to be like that. Um, that's a shame, I think. But it does tell you that there are limits to what Fetterman or a candidate like Fetterman can do. And obviously someone like Tim Ryan, it's a shame because I think Tim Ryan uh, would have been um, a good senator. Um, but he does show uh, this at, at the end when he when he concedes, I think it's an, a very important uh, thing to do. And I hope that this 
echoes with people uh, that need to hear it. Shannon. So, you know, I saw the headlines too, you know, 150 election deniers elected. And I was like, oh my goodness. And I just want to draw attention to a good portion of those election deniers were incumbents. And right, if there's one sort of truism in political science and American politics is that the incumbency advantage is real and it's large. Um, and so I, we need to sort of separate out election deniers who are incumbents who won like DeSantis, right? There are other things going on there and election deniers who won in open seat or challenging races. And I think when we look that way, the election deniers who are in open races or who challenge people didn't do quite as well as maybe was expected. Um, and again, this draws back to sort of the big picture thing that we that we led with and that this was this was not a good outcome for Republicans, right? Given the state of the economy, given Biden's approval, they should have done better. And I think part of the narrative has to be that why they didn't do better was because they ran candidates who were not acceptable to parts of the American public. Um, were they acceptable in some contexts? Yes. Right in Florida and Ohio, which is, you know, I think Aaron will probably emphasize this is no longer a swing state. It is a Republican state. But in other places that are perhaps more competitive, um, election deniers who were in open seats or challenging didn't do quite as well. Hmm. Aaron. Um, anybody who thinks Ohio is a purple state is uh, in the 90s. Ohio is a deeply red state and um, Democrats don't need to stop organizing there, but they need to stop counting on it for national elections. It makes Sherrod Brown's wins there all the more, you know, impressive. Um, I also think um, that Shannon's correct that, you know, yes, those overall numbers on deniers getting reelected as, you know, a threat to democracy. It's that simple. However, in swing states, in these high profile elections, uh, thus far, uh, uh, J.D. Vance winning is the exception rather than the rule. And so, you know, voters surprised a lot of people on Tuesday night by say by pushing back against election deniers. Obviously, Dobbs played a part. Donald Trump picked some really bad candidates that could win in primaries, but not in generals. But it, it's hard to overemphasize what a shock this is. You know, inflation's high. Gas is expensive. Uh, Joe Biden's, uh, his approval rating is at 43%. And um, there are very few pickups by the Republican Party. That says the electorate, there's a good news story on the electorate pushing back on rule of law and respecting election outcomes. I would, I would even add to that, Aaron, that in fact, the pickups that happened on the Republican side, many of them were because they were gerrymandered, uh, especially in Florida but also in other states that if there, if there were free and fair elections, like they're supposed to be, right, where the districts are not drawn by politicians, the Democrats might have already secured the House. Uh, in places where they didn't, they were not gerrymandered as the Senate, they did much better. And I think that's, that's a clear story as you're talking about. No, and even you made me think of Georgia. You know, Brian Kemp was uh, eviscerated by Donald Trump. And, you know, as Stacey Abrams pointed out in her race against him, all he did was the bare minimum. He certified the election. You know, this used to be a, a pretty base expectation, yeah. but he was rewarded by Georgians for doing so. Um, and there's a lesson there. Yes. I just want to ask in a round robin way, because I don't want to get into it deeply. 
Trump impact effect, whatever, positive or negative this go round? Um, Aaron, what do you think? Negative, no doubt. Lost the popular in 16, lost the popular and the electoral college in 2020, and his candidates lost on Tuesday night. Louise? Yeah, there's no question it was negative. And if I was a Republican, I would be seriously considering finally dumping him. Shannon? That's three votes for negative. The Republicans should have cleaned the floor, uh, you know, on Tuesday, and they did not. So I think that's that's falls on Trump. Um, I think he's running again. I think he's going to announce next (laughs) week, but we'll see. All right. Coming up, it's more insight and analysis from the Mass Politics Profs. We're examining local and national political issues in the wake of the November 8th election. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our discussion with three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien and Luis Jimenez of UMass Boston, and Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. Let's pick up where we left off talking about the early results from the November 8th election. I want to I point out a couple of trends. Um, one is local. Uh, this is a turn for Massachusetts where it's a one-party, in-charge state, and that has not been the case. The governor for many years has been um, Republican and the, the, the state house Democratic in leadership. Now, of course, it did happen. Deval Patrick was Democrat, um, but for the most part, that's the way that um, Massachusetts voters, most of whom are unenrolled, not a member of any party, um, have elected to go. So this will be a first in a while. And I wonder, I also just was looking closely at some of the early returns, and it looks like, for example, um, Cruz, who is the incumbent uh, prosecutor in uh, the race that Rasan Hall uh, was challenging him, is going to end up being the only Republican prosecutor in Massachusetts. So my point is, a lot of Democratic one-party rule in many high-profile positions and in the legislature. What's your takeaway about how this can go? I'll start with you, Shannon. Oh, I don't think it matters at all. I mean, let's be honest, right? I'll, I will, Aaron will be proud of me. I'll, I'll toot our book that we that we wrote. And I wrote a cha- chapter of a, uh, about legislatures, about Massachusetts exceptionalism and politics. And here's the thing, the legislature has always been dominant, right? The Democrats have had veto-proof majorities in both chambers. Um, so I don't think it changes politics all very much. The legislature does what the legislature wants and the legislature will continue to do what the legislature wants. Okay, that is right. But I do think there's some new people in the legislature um, that might move the needle on some specific issues. Uh, There's more Latinos. I know that. And that's really going to, I think, bring some issues uh, in the legislature that might not otherwise be talked about. And so you're absolutely right. Uh, Having the governor doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to see a lot of changes. But the legislature, I think it's really going to matter. 
I'm circling back to the Latino increase in just a second, but Erin, I want to get your response. Uh, listen, uh, in the abstract and political science, we know uh, electoral competition between the two parties where, you know, uh, elections are fiercely fought, helps for transparency, it helps undermine uh, or not prevent corruption, um, and it makes for um, more diverse candidates. And so those are all good things. And they're less likely to happen in Massachusetts because of how deeply blue our state is. But uh, we're deeply blue, not because, as you pointed out, Callie, the, the majority position is unenrolled voter. Um, Charlie Baker has won handily. Yes, the legislature is totally dominated by Democrats, but there's room for moderate Republicans. And Jeff Deal and Jim Lyons at the Mass GOP, the institutional structure of the Mass GOP, not necessarily their voters, didn't offer that up. Um, uh, you know, I think if Charlie Baker had run against Maura Healy, we'd be having a very different conversation today. And so I don't think Massachusetts got bluer because we're more ideologically, we've gone more progressive. It's that we weren't offered anything else. Okay, well, just following up with that, um, what, how do you look at the, again, we're talking and we're taping this early results, 33, more than 33% of voters, wherever they fell on the on the party uh, line, uh, supported Jeff Deal. And the fourth ballot question, which was um, directed at either voting down a law that had just been approved by the legislature to allow special driver's licenses for undocumented folks, um, or vote to keep it because it again it was just passed. Um, at this taping, we don't know wh which way it's going. The vote was so tight, which indicates there's more going on there than just having to do with the law itself. It seems to me that it has to do with the the issue that um, seems to be uh, one that upsets a lot of people. So I, I just wanted to get on ask all of you how to respond to that. There are there are a, a whole other core of people in Massachusetts that are not a part of this big blue Democratic wave and feel very differently. And is it significant enough uh, to be paying attention to? I mean, I think we definitely pay attention to it, but the this election was the test case. The hypothesis that Deal and uh, Jim Lyons were running is that there was a taste for a Trumpy GOP and that they could gain majority status. They ran the election, we ran the experiment, and they were wrong. I, I think you're 100% correct, you know, 33%, 35%, you know, 45% on issue four are willing to go that route. But 50 plus one wins elections. And um, uh, the, the GOP um, uh, atrophied. But to your point, Callie, there are some individuals who want it, but they just don't have majority status. And issue four is symbolic politics. Uh, right now, it's you know, 53, 47. Um, and it looks like 53 for yes. Luis. Well, on the, on the issue of question four, that's exactly what I was afraid of, exactly that, which is, that this is an issue that a lot of people misunderstand, that it's easy to make people think that this is a really bad uh, decision that the Democrats took. And it's easy to criticize, right? Like they don't listen to you. They're, it's not common sense, you know, this sort of stuff, uh, which is much easier to sell than a Trumpian mass GOP. So I think Aaron is absolutely right that there's, um, there's not enough 
there's not enough people that's, that want that kind of politics. But when there's issues like this, which are not moderate, but you can, you can make them sound that way. You can make them, it, it, it seems like a, no, a very common sense sort of thing to say these people shouldn't have driver's licenses when in fact there's a lot more going on. I think that's why that's, it's closer to succeeding than the mass GOP is. Shannon? Yeah, you know, uh, there's a lot of political science research that has come into question over the last, you know, say <laughs> eight to 10 years. Um, but I will say one thing that rings true, and, and I know this is not exactly parallel, but independent voters, a lot of people think they're independent voters, but political scientists will say, no, 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 that they're not really. And what we find, right, is while a lot of people say they're independent or unenrolled, we have what are called leaners in that broad category, right? People who say, well, I'm an independent, but I kind of prefer Democrats, or I'm an independent, I kind of prefer Republicans. And those independent leaners perform and vote and act very similarly to, um, to, to partisan voters. Um, and so I think, you know, the deal outcome sort of reflects that, that those unenrolled voters oftentimes prefer Democrats, right? We look at that consistently across election outcomes. Um, ballot questions tend to, are less likely to sort of invoke partisan identities um, and more likely to invoke preferences or to confuse preferences <laughs> to Luis's uh, <laughs> point here. Um, and so I see, we see some divergence there, but I think it's a mistake to say, well, you know, unenrolled voters are independents. Um, they're not, a good bulk of them are, are like actually partisan voters. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Joining me are three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Louise Jimenez, also of UMass Boston, and Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth. We're discussing the latest local and national political stories after the November 8th midterms. Um, I want to circle back to the Latino legislators um, the numbers going up um, because of this election, um, Luis, I know you've been following that. I only know for sure that Chicopee's Shirley Arigia, I might be pronouncing her name wrong, I'm sure I am, um, won. Um, she was, a lot of people were unopposed. So Sam Montano of Boston was unopposed, Manny Cruz of Salem unopposed, Estella Reyes, Pavel Payano. Uh, and Polly and Newf Lawrence were unopposed on the ballot. So they're in. Uh, the people who were opposed, as I said, was uh, Chicopee's Shirley Ariaga. That's probably a better pronunciation. And Chelsea's Judith Garcia. I don't know what happened to Judith G Garcia. Do you? No, I, I haven't seen the, the latest mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, th so they, in, in this case, like the ones that were unopposed is because of course the primaries were, right. Uh, right. were the main way to get people elected. And so this is going to be the largest number of Latino legislators in Massachusetts history. Uh, there's not an, enough of a number to completely like remake, you know, politics or anything like that. But it does mean uh, to, at least to my friend, which it just keeps every election, we keep coming back to this issue. And Latinos keep gaining power. They keep gaining power. More and more voted for them. I don't know. I haven't seen the numbers for that either uh, because it's just too early. But anecdotally, uh, I am almost 100% certain that the number for Latinos went up. I, am, I, I would bet money on that mm -hmm. uh, of, of actual, actual voting turnout. And so that's great. That's, that's a, I think that's a good sign for the health of the Commonwealth. 
because then this group of people that historically had been underrepresented are, are making their voice heard. And it does speak to the issue that we were talking about earlier, uh, even though we don't have necessarily a competitive elections in terms of uh, Republicans, Democrats, this can make elections in the primaries competitive, which might lower the problems that Aaron was talking about with corruption and things like that. Um, Latinos are the second largest uh, population um, ranked by race and ethnicity in Massachusetts. So um, we're talking about people coming into just coming into a political power that begins to approximate their um, relationship to to the size of the population um, in Massachusetts. And again, to your point about this redistricting, it's very important. Shannon, um, uh, Aaron, want to weigh in on that on this increase and what you think it might what what might happen here? I'll, I'll add my two cents. Um, I am. I, I think it's great that we have greater, uh, you know, Latino representation, and I think it shows how redistricting matters. Um, but I'm a little less optimistic about the ability of um, these new representatives to have um, impact in our legislature. Um, perhaps in the Senate, the Senate tends to have a more decentralized power structure, but the power structure in the House is very centralized, um, and the leadership does what the leadership wants. Um, and so, um, I don't know how much the leadership is going to loosen the reins of power um, to allow these these new legislators to um, to sort of, you know, bring different issues or to change the way the House operates. Um, I think at some point that's going to happen. There's some pressure building towards that, um, but I'm not sure that we're there yet. OK, Aaron, you know what Frederick Douglass said? Power needs nothing. But <laughs> just saying, <laughs> and, and that could be the new emblem in the Massachusetts state legislature. <laughs> you know, forget whatever adages we have up there. Um, first, I think you know Louise. Uh, I listened to Louise on these issues. He wrote a great chapter in our book on Latinx politics in Massachusetts, and he's been beating a drum that Kelly, you regularly beat too, that the Latinx population is, is uh, diverse. And they're politically diverse and places like Florida behave different than Massachusetts in within these states. So I think some of this just reemphasizes that. In terms of um, the uptick of individuals being elected, I agree with Shannon that they enter a chamber that it's hard to have influence. That said, um, you know, demographic uh, representation leads to substantive representation, meaning um, policy outcomes. And it's also important that this puts the, these individuals in the pipeline. They're now in the pipeline for leadership. They're now in the pipeline for moving from the state house to the state Senate. They might run for executive office. You know, um, Ed Markey's not going to be there forever. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's <laughs> not going to be there forever. So from a pipeline perspective, these wins are important for Latinx representation in Massachusetts as well. Yes. All right. Okay. A couple other things I want to get, uh, uh, talk to you guys about. Um, one, youth voter turnout. So the Harvard Public Opinion Project had just released their fall poll saying they expected young people 18 to 29 to vote. They were correct. Youth turnout, they said, would be strong for Democrats, and it was. Let's just take a listen to what they were predicting before the election. 
days until the 2022 midterms, it's time to talk about turnout amongst young voters. Youth turnout is on track to match 2018's historic turnout, with 40% of young Americans reporting that they will definitely be voting. And the composition of the youth electorate doesn't look all that different from 2018, with no significant change in expected turnout by race, gender, education status, or party. But we do see that young Democrats and white voters have been energized since the spring, and that young people with a college education or who live in battleground states are more likely to vote than their fellow Gen Zers. Well, there you go. Um, so they turned out, and apparently in many of these tight races particularly, um, their impact was felt. Shannon? Yeah, I mean, you know, Gen Z voters were significantly democratic as compared to all other, you know, um, demographic groups. Um, the CNN exit poll has them at a plus 28 percent Democrat in the in the House exit poll. My quote unquote research assistant, i.e. my husband, who is also, <laughs> you know, consuming also political scientists and also consuming election results, um, actually, you know, texted me that he compared the exit polls from 2018 to 2022. Um, and 18 to 29 year olds were about the same proportion of the electorate. Um, so they did show up in 2018 and they showed up again in 2022. They're slightly less democratic this time than they were in 2018, but they are still overwhelmingly democratic. Um, and I think abortion rights appears to have, you know, played some role in that. They are the most likely to be impacted by this, you know, directly as compared to say 65 plus year olds. Um, and that seems to have really um, galvanized them. Louise? Yeah, and if I was a Republican, I would be very, very worried about this. Now, we there has been talks about an emergent Democratic majority since I think 2004, maybe, uh, was when it first was for, first written, a political um, talk about that. But it, it seems to be happening. And this generation is voting more and more. The, the numbers keep growing on them. And that's really going to change politics because as we've just been talking about, right, in this midterm, that by all accounts, structurally, Democrats should have lost at least 20 seats, if not more, maybe even, you know, something in the range of 40 seats. Um, they did not. And they, they, they might gain a seat in the Senate and so on. Uh, and what made that happen is exactly that. The young voters came out because of, you know, abortion and so on. But whatever the reasons, they have very different politics to their elders, very different. And so what that means is that going forward is it's going to be harder and harder for the Republicans to be able to win the seats they need to win without with the electorate. The electorate is going to be less friendly to, towards them every single year. And so what is that going to do for a Trumpian uh, GOP? Hopefully change it in some way. But regardless, the politics are going to change. They're not going to be able to keep going the way they're going now. I think that's very important. Aaron? I don't share my confidence, the same confidence as Louise. I agree with everything you said, Louise, up to the last point that um, uh, the party will adjust. And that's only because I've been fooled before. <laughs> you, know, for, you know, for a long time, it was, you know, uh, Black voters will make up a higher percentage of the population and the GOP will have to change. And then Latinx voters will make up a higher percentage, so the GOP will have to change. And rather, the GOP, especially with Latinx voters, has courted them. Um, so I'm not um, convinced that youth voters couldn't eventually change, but uh, my colleagues are 100% correct that they um, prioritize, that, that their policy choices or their policy preferences don't mirror older voters. 
Kelly, you always, and I love it, talk about the youth vote and you always give it attention. And I think your time has finally come. <laughs> they pulled through. <laughs> they did. Uh, I'll also note that there has been some disaffection of young, specifically African-American voters. What that means, how that played out, where it falls, I have no idea. But that's also been an opportunity um, Luis was saying that this was a message to Republicans, where Republicans have been definitely trying to take advantage of that now. Whether it worked or not, I cannot say, but that is true. And finally, I just want to wrap up by uh, looking again at the issues that were motivational, it seems, uh, for folks to vote. Uh, all of you have mentioned abortion, and we talked about that pre-election, and at the time you all were pretty sure it was going to be motivational, but it looked as though the enthusiasm had waned a little bit. Um, maybe, as Louise said, it was you know driven up again by the, by the young people. But inflation definitely is what gave a lot of Republican candidates an edge, uh, talking about it and blaming the Democrats. So from each of your perspectives, were those the two, the, the top motivational issues that um, uh, pulled people to the polls. I'll start with you, Shannon. Well, I think, you know, particularly with respect to abortion, it depends on whether abortion was on the ballot. And where abortion was on the ballot, I think it was definitely motivational, right? You look at Kentucky, um, where they defeated an anti-abortion measure, but you also look to Michigan, where the Democrats have taken control of the legislature for the first time in 40 years. There were a lot of people who were motivated by that by Mich in Michigan, and they and they won, right? Was was abortion a motivating vote in Massachusetts? Probably not. It wasn't on the ballot. Um, so I think what the lesson about abortion is, is that where it was on the ballot, um, it deeply mattered. Was it on the ballot, however, Louise, in regard to candidates, maybe not on the ballot, on the ballot, but if the candidate made it, um, you know, a part of their... Uh, forthright uh, declaration of what I'm all about. Let's, I'm looking at like, for example, Maggie Hassan and, um, Herschel, you know, other, yeah, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> he, was yeah, going, yeah. he was going in a different direction, but you, you get my drift, you know? Yes, yeah. yes. No, I do. I mean, yes, obviously some candidates felt the need to, you know, talk about that more than others. Uh, and obviously that might have played a, a, a role. But to Shannon's point, I mean, I do think overall, even in Massachusetts, obviously there must have been people that were motivated by this. Um, you know, that's probably not a majority, but there probably were some. I think though there were some local issues that might have motivated people individually. So it really depended on the structure, really what was on the ballot. I think the local issues mattered, but overall, I don't think that there was anything nationally beyond the abortion and inflation or the economy writ large, that was as important. You know, like if you could name two, more than two issues, I don't see any other issue that could have been nationally uh, motivating. Aaron. Um, of course it mattered, right? Um, uh, you know, Dobbs was, listen, voters are complicated. Um, single issue voters don't exist to the same degree. So, you know, there are multiple considerations when people go to the polls. So we talk a lot about the silent majority when we're thinking about like Nixon. Um, and I think there is a very different silent majority that went to the polls quietly 
and voted with Dobbs in the front of their brains with other considerations as well. But, you know, it's not just that uh, uh, Americans lean pro-choice. They lean pro-choice by, you know, uh, a few uh, few percentage points. They're okay with waiting periods, but Americans don't like having rights taken away from them. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it was very motivating. And I think the frame that many of us self-included uh, was uh, prior to the election was how much will it matter? Will it matter enough? And uh, the answer is it was one of four or five considerations that drove a lot of people to the polls. And in the pure test of those five states that had ballot issues, they all voted the same way despite being very different political context. That's important. Republicans could learn a lesson there, but I doubt they will. Okay. Well, I'll leave us leave in this conversation with two um, other historic moments. Maryland elected its first black governor, Westmore, author of a fabulous book. Somebody should read it if you haven't, called The Other Westmore. He won the gubernatorial race in Maryland. It's the first, uh, the state's first black governor, and he's the third black person to be elected governor in U.S. history. And in Arkansas, first female governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. You'll remember her from the Trump White House. She's Republican, former White House press secretary, and she becomes the first woman to win the governorship in Arkansas. And that Ladies and gentlemen, and mass politics profs is the midterm conversation for the moment. So I thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Aaron O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Luis Jimenez, also an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And Shannon Jenkins, political science professor at UMass Dartmouth. You can read more of their analysis on their blog, masspoliticsprofs.org. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Kelly Wessinger and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Catherine Hurley. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.